Well, this is a topic that always is exciting to me to study, but it also requires some mental taxation. So I hope that your minds are clear and energetic and ready for some, some taxing study. In the book Testimonies to Ministers, page 114, it tells us that one of the reasons that God has given us the knowledge of health reform and the knowledge of how to be simple in diet and to avoid the indulgence of perverted appetite is so that we can have clear minds that will be able to stand the strain of digging deep in the study of the prophecies and of God's Word. So I hope that we all have those benefits this morning as we study. Yesterday afternoon, we studied about some of the issues that Satan had raised in his rebellion against God. His accusations that God had no mercy, that he was not able to forgive sins, that could not be part of his government that he was a God of justice and that, that those who sinned or disobeyed his law had to be shut out of his presence. And Satan claimed the human race because they had sinned as his subjects. And we saw how after 4,000 years of development of sin, God sent his son to this earth that it was God in human flesh here on this earth in the form of his son and that that demonstration answered arguments that Satan had raised that had been long standing for 4,000 years and that at that point that things that had been enshrouded in mystery in the minds of even the heavenly angels were now made clear in the last link of sympathy even with the loyal angels the last link of sympathy with Satan was broken now I'd like to take a few minutes at the beginning here to look at some things regarding these issues of justice and mercy it's important that we grasp how significant these things are in the controversy between Christ and Satan. Sometimes it's easy to go on in our, our daily routine and daily lives and not realize how much of an impact in our daily experience these issues that Satan has raised have. As I have studied some of these things, it has become more and more apparent that all of the questions that arise in our minds about why things happen to us, about why sin continues on, about why the innocent little child ends up getting brutally murdered, and all of the other things that take place. Why, why, all the questions of why, all of these are related to the issues of justice and mercy. What is justice? 
Justice in the scripture is oftentimes referred to by the terms righteousness, judgment, truth, and the term justice. As you read through the scripture, you find these terms being used in reference to justice. Now, mercy in the scripture is referred to by terms such as mercy, grace, or peace. Let's look at several passages that will illustrate this. Psalm chapter 61, verse 7. Psalm chapter 61, verse 7. It's interesting, when you get started studying on this, if you take a concordance and just look up these terms and see all the different places where they occur and what the context is. I discovered that it's easy to read over a lot of these passages and not realize what's really being discussed until we study these terms and see the context in which they are used. Psalm 61.7 tells us, he shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare, what? Mercy, Mercy and truth. truth. This is one of the places where we find the term truth referring to the, the meaning of justice. So we have mercy and justice here. Prepare mercy and truth, or mercy and justice, which may preserve him. The two things are both needed in order to fully sustain God's government and his subjects. They're necessary for the eternal security of God's government. And you remember the passage that we looked at yesterday afternoon from Great Controversy, page 593. It said that we can only honor God as we have a right conception of what three things? His character, government, and purposes. And justice and mercy are the two main fundamental pillars of God's government, his character, and his purposes. So we want to understand how these things are demonstrated and how the claims of Satan and his arguments are answered in regard to these things. Let's look in Psalm 85, verse 10. Psalm 85, verse 10. Mercy and truth are what? Met together. What do you think that means? Is that just a, a nice poetic expression? <laughs> or is there something vitally significant being stated there? Mercy and truth are met together. What would I... What, what would be the meaning if I were to tell you I am going to make a demonstration where I will show you how to combine water and fire and keep both of them at their full proportions? Yes. Mercy was revealed when sin entered the, the universe, but truth would always be there. All right. What does it mean when it says mercy and truth have met 
together. First of all, that indicates that there must have been some kind of a context where they looked like they were apart, or at least appeared to be apart. Isn't that right? If it tells us they have met together, that means that there's a context where it looked like they, at least, that they were apart. Mercy and truth have met together, or are met together, righteousness and peace. Other expressions for the same thing. Righteousness being an expression of what? Which of the two characteristics, justice or mercy? Righteousness would be the characteristic of what? Justice. That's right. And peace have kissed each other. Peace would be on the side of mercy. Righteousness and peace. Justice and mercy. This is simply telling us with different terms. Justice and mercy are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Yes, they're attributes of God. But the, the thing that we need to recognize is that they have not appeared to be united attributes of God through the controversy. Even today, without realizing it, many times when questions come to our mind about how God is dealing with us, or about why sin continues to exist, or many other things, we actually are having questions about the traits of justice and mercy. And we're wondering, where is the balance of these things? Do you have those kind of questions? When you hear things going on on the news and terrible destruction takes place somewhere, do you ever wonder, why did that happen there and not here? Why did that not happen in London? Why didn't it happen in Los Angeles? Why didn't it happen in some other place of wickedness? That's actually a question of asking, where is the line of justice and mercy? Where is the line of fairness? Anytime these kind of questions come up, we are still perplexed over where is the uniting of justice and mercy. Now let's notice what the definition of justice is. In Strong's Concordance, you can look up the word justice, and you can look up the word mercy, and here's what you find if you look up the term justice. Justice is a term which designates precision of values and standards by which to measure things. Now in the dictionary, justice is described this way. This is in Webster's Dictionary. The virtue which consists in giving to everyone what is his due, that is, what he deserves. Does that sound like justice? How about it? <laughs> is it justice to give a person exactly what he deserves? Isn't that in harmony with justice? Yes, that's what justice is. Anything less than that is a compromise of justice. The virtue which consists in giving to everyone what is his due. Practical conformity to the laws and to the principles of rectitude in the dealings of men with each other. Honesty, integrity in commerce or mutual intercourse. 
impartiality, equal distribution of right in expressing opinions, fair representation of facts respecting merit or demerit. That means in order for justice to be fully satisfied, you can't cover anything up. You can't leave out something that would show an important part of the true picture. In order to be fully just, everything has to be taken into account. And everything has to receive what it deserves. Vindictive retribution, merited punishment, right, application of equity. These are all parts of the definition that I'm quoting from Webster's Dictionary. Now all of these things are def part of the definition or description of justice. Now notice the contrast when we look at the definition of mercy. Here is how mercy is described in Strong's Concordance. It uses these terms, compassion, pity, kindness, favor, reproof. And here's how it's described in Webster's Dictionary. That benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. Does that sound exactly like justice? No, that's a little different. Justice is to treat everyone exactly how they deserve. Mercy is to treat an offender better than he deserves. The disposition that tempers justice. The disposition that tempers. That means modifies and softens it up. That tempers justice. And induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment or inflict less than law or justice warrant. In this sense, there is perhaps no word in our language precisely synonymous with mercy. That which comes nearest to it is grace. It is exercised only toward offenders. Do you see any apparent discrepancy between strict justice and strict mercy? Yes. Do you see how it's possible for it to look like mercy somehow compromises justice a little bit? Now, what, is, what would be an example of an exercise of mercy? Suppose, as I am driving down the road, I'm running over the speed limit, and a traffic officer comes up behind and stops me and he says, do you know how fast you were going? And I say, no I don't. Was I going faster than the speed limit? And he says, yes you were. You were 10 miles over the speed limit. And he says, I'm going to have to give you a ticket. Is that being just? Is that fair? Yes. Do I deserve it? Yes. Because I was violating the law. Now suppose I tell the traffic officer, I am so sorry, I didn't realize I was going over the speed limit. And he says, well, you've got a speedometer, you can tell whether you're going over the speed limit. I say, yes, I realize you're right. I deserve a fine. I guess I'll take my medicine. 
And he says, well, seeing as how this is the first time that you have had this offense, I'm going to exercise some mercy. And I'm not going to give you a ticket. But don't do this again. Watch that speedometer. Has he carried out strict justice? No, he hasn't. He has tempered justice. He has given me less than what is really due. Has God done that? If God was to give us what we really deserve, what would happen to us? We would be destroyed. God has been exercising mercy by holding off or by providing some alternative route for justice to be met. And we have not faced justice. We have been experiencing the exercise of mercy. Do you see why Satan can make the claim? He says, you are not letting these people face full accountability for their decisions. You're treating them differently from what's in harmony with justice. Now we looked yesterday at the fact that Satan had initially said that justice excluded mercy. That because God was a God of justice, he could not exercise mercy. But God showed that there was mercy in self-denying with him, that he was forgiving. And the demonstration of his love at the cross forever silenced Satan's accusation that there was not mercy with God. But what has Satan done now? I want to go back to the passage in Desire of Ages where I stopped yesterday. I want you to follow carefully what Satan has done when he saw that he could no longer make that claim with any credibility. God's love has been expressed in his justice no less than in his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. It had been Satan's purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. He sought to prove that the righteousness of God's law is an enemy to peace. You see these terms all used in here? Peace and truth, justice mercy this is page 762 in desire of ages but christ showed that in god's plan they are indissolubly joined together the one cannot exist without the other now how can we explain that when it looks like mercy compromises justice how can justice be fully upheld you see here here are the questions that the angels want to see answered. How can God be fully just and still exercise mercy? How can he exercise mercy and justice be fully satisfied? They are indissolubly joined together. The one cannot exist without the other. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That was the passage we read just a little earlier from Psalm 85, 10. It's in Christ and in his demonstration that we see those things brought together. 
And the agony that Christ went through in Gethsemane on the cross was the heat. If you want to look at it that way, it's the heat of bringing those two things together and showing them to be perfectly united. By his life and his death, Christ proved that God's justice did not destroy his mercy, but that sin could be forgiven and that the law is righteous and can be perfectly obeyed. Satan's charges were refuted. God had given man unmistakable evidence of his love. And we looked at that yesterday. But now notice what happens next. Another deception was now to be brought forward. So 4,000 years down the line in the controversy, Satan introduces a new deception. What is the new deception? Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice. So he says, in essence, all right, I was wrong on that, that thought. There is mercy with God. In fact, we now see that God is so merciful that he will not punish sin. He won't call people to account. He will not exercise justice. God is all mercy. Do we hear echoes of that today? We want to look in a little bit and see how there was reflected in the religions of the time previous to Christ's advent the accusations of Satan during that period of time and in the religions of today and in the errors of today we see reflected the accusations of Satan that have taken place since the cross. Another deception was now brought forward. Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice, that the death of Christ abrogated the Father's law. Had it been possible for the law to be changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. But to abrogate the law would be to immortalize transgression and place the world under Satan's control. It was because the law was changeless. Now notice, this is fortifying the thought that Justice is the foundation of God's government. It's because the law is changeless. Because man could be saved only through obedience to its precepts that Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Yet, the very means by which Christ established the law, Satan represented as destroying it. Here will come the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Now, has that conflict been fully developed yet? No, it hasn't. Just like previous to Christ's first advent, it wasn't until Christ's ministry and the final scenes in Gethsemane on the, on, on the cross that the conflict fully was developed. There are two chapters at the beginning of the book Desire of Ages. I read through the book several times before I began noticing the impact and significance of these chapters. At first it seemed like the first few chapters were kind of introductory and I'd kind of breeze through them real fast and, and get into the meat of the book, as I thought. The part that was really interesting. 
But then, after beginning to realize the tremendous impact of the issues in the great controversy over justice and mercy and over where the balance is of those two, how do they unite together? How can they be shown to, to fully exist 100% of each? 100% justice and 100% mercy without compromising either one. How can that be shown that I began realizing the significance of these early chapters? Chapter 2 and Chapter 3. The title of Chapter 2 in the book Desire of Ages is The Chosen People. The title of Chapter 3 is The Fullness of Time. And I discovered that it takes those two things to bring about a demonstration that answers Satan's accusations. A chosen people in the fullness of time. Now, what constituted the chosen people at the time that the demonstration took place in connection with Christ's first advent? Yes, it was the Jewish church. And that's what this chapter is about. It starts out at the very beginning of the chapter. For more than a thousand years, the Jewish people had awaited the Savior's coming. It goes on describing how God had chosen Israel. He had committed to them the knowledge of his law, the symbols and prophecies that pointed to the Savior, the promise even after captivity and being wasted by desolation. The promise was still theirs that in Israel would come forth the Messiah and that there would be a demonstration of God's character. But then it describes how the Israelites fixed their hopes upon worldly greatness, and that down through their history, every Reformation was followed by deeper apostasy and, and deeper declension. It talks about how the... Pharisees and the leaders of Israel made many burdensome exactions and they that the Jews gradually lost all the spiritual life from their ceremonies and they clung to dead forms they trusted in sacrifices and ordinances it points out how that while the Jews desired the advent of the Messiah they had no true conception of his mission they did not seek redemption from sin but deliverance from the Romans and you know what it describes as the chapter draws to a conclusion? It describes what's taking place in the chosen people. It says that at the time of the birth of Christ, the nation was chafing under the rule of her foreign masters and racked with internal strife. The Jews had been permitted to maintain the form of a separate government, but nothing could disguise the fact that they were under the Roman yoke or reconcile them to the restriction of their power. The Romans claimed the right of appointing and removing the high priest, and the office was often secured. Notice, it didn't say rarely or once in a while. It said the office of high priest was often secured by fraud bribery, and murder. The highest spiritual office in the nation was often secured by fraud, bribery, and murder. Yet, they were still God's chosen people. It was the place where the demonstration was going to take place that would answer questions the angels wanted to see answered for over 4,000 years. 
It would take place here on this stage. Thus the priesthood became more and more corrupt. The state of affairs caused widespread discontent. Popular outbreaks were frequent. Greed and violence, distrust and spiritual apathy were eating out the very heart of the nation. All of this was the picture of the chosen people at the time when Christ came at his first advent. Now what constitutes the fullness of time in this sense? Suppose that Christ had come as the Messiah, as Adam and Eve thought he would, as one of their children in their generation. Suppose Christ had come then and he had somehow been crucified and died. Would that have answered the questions that had been raised by Satan? Why did things have to continue on for 4,000 years before Christ came? Have you ever thought about that? In a similar sense, we could ask, why have things continued on for another 2,000 years after Christ's first advent? Things keep getting worse and worse and worse. How much further do we need to go to see how bad sin is? Why does not Christ put an end to it? Why doesn't he come? Again, we should ask the question, is there something meant in this phrase, the fullness of the time? What constitutes the fullness of time? In this chapter, it quotes the passage from Galatians 4, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. Well, we could say the fullness of time meant that the time period of the prophecy had reached its conclusion. But is that all there is to it? Is it simply a matter of reaching the termination of the prophecy in Daniel when the Messiah is to appear? Or is there more in the context of the fullness of the time? As we look through the chapter, notice several of the characteristics that it brings out as constituting the fullness of time. Now anything previous to this would have been previous to the fullness of the time, right? So it would have been premature if the fullness of the time somehow denotes a certain point which is necessary to be reached. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. I'm reading now from page 32. Providence had directed the movements of nations and the tide of human impulse and influence until the world was ripe for the coming of the Deliverer. That still doesn't tell us a whole lot, but it does clearly indicate that there's something meant by being ripe. Jesus did not come and make the demonstration until conditions were ripe. What constitutes that ripeness? First of all, the nations were united under one government. Do you realize there was a one-world government <laughs> at the time of Christ's first advent? What was the significance of that? One language was widely spoken and was everywhere recognized as the language of literature. I hope you're thinking about these characteristics of the fullness of time. Why was this an important aspect of the fullness of time? 
Because when the truth was presented, it could be spread all over the world in a language that could be understood quickly because people already were familiar with the language that was being used for literature, and that was the Greek language. Remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. From all lands, the Jews of the dispersion gathered to Jerusalem to the annual feasts. As these returned to the places of their sojourn, they could spread throughout the world the tidings of the Messiah's coming. Now, here's another characteristic. At this time, the systems of heathenism were losing their hold upon the people. Men were weary of pageant and fable. They longed for a religion that could satisfy the heart. While the light of truth seemed to have departed from among men, there were souls who were looking for light and who were filled with perplexity and sorrow. They were thirsting for a knowledge of the living God, for some assurance of a life beyond the grave. Now it might be a little harder for us as we look around us in society today to see how much of a parallel there might be to that. But I think that we might be able to see evidence that people are losing their interest in the systems of religion that presently exist in the fact that we see more and more people looking for something new. Trying some new fad, trying anything new. It's an evidence that people are looking for something they don't have. Skipping on a little further in the chapter, it says, For hundreds of years the scriptures had been translated into the Greek language, then widely spoken throughout the Roman Empire. The Jews were scattered everywhere, and their expectation of the Messiah's coming was to some extent shared by the Gentiles. Among those whom the Jews styled heathen were men who had a better understanding of the scripture prophecies concerning the Messiah than had the teachers in Israel. So outside of the Jewish nation, there were some of the people who were viewed as heathen that had a better understanding of the prophecies concerning the Messiah than had the teachers in Israel. Do you remember some of those received direction from God to come to worship Jesus when he was born, the the wise men from the east. And when they came to Jerusalem, did they receive enlightenment from the Jewish leaders? What was the question they asked? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And what was the response? Remember, they were brought to Herod. And Herod... This was very interesting. I didn't fully realize this until just uh, recently reading again some of the account here in Desire of Ages that Herod was the one who told them that they should go to Bethlehem. Now how did Herod find out they should go to Bethlehem? He went to the Jewish leaders and he said, where does it say in the scriptures where the Messiah is going to be born? And it says that the, the uh, apparent apathy and, and lack of interest that they showed in, in looking angered him and he commanded them with an authority they couldn't resist to find in the scriptures where the Messiah was to be born. Well, they already knew 
But they went through the motions, and they finally told him, well, it says in Micah that he'll be born in Bethlehem. And Herod told the wise men, he said, it's in Bethlehem. You go to Bethlehem. And that night, as they prepared to travel, the star appeared, and it confirmed that it was at Bethlehem because that's where it led them. The Jewish leaders understood less and were less prepared to receive the message than even those people who the Jewish had styled as heathen and Gentiles. It says there were some who hoped for his coming as a deliverer from sin. Philosophers endeavored to study into the mystery of the Hebrew economy, but the bigotry of the Jews hindered the spread of the light. Intent on maintaining the separation between themselves and other nations, they were unwilling to impart the knowledge they still possessed concerning the symbolic services. It goes on describing how there were still some earnest, sincere, and steadfast souls among the Jews. Then at the bottom of page 34, it says, The fullness of the time had come. Humanity, becoming more degraded through ages of transgression, called for the coming of the Redeemer. So here's one of the characteristics also. Deepening degradation of humanity. Degradation through ages of transgression. Satan had worked, or had been working, to make the gulf deep, and impassable between earth and heaven. By his falsehoods he had emboldened men in sin. Notice now the next sentence. It was his purpose to wear out the forbearance of God. He actually thought he could bring things to a point where God would say, there's no hope for man. There's no point in doing anything further. It was his purpose to wear out the forbearance of God and to extinguish his love for man so that he would abandon the world to satanic jurisdiction. Through heathenism, Satan had for ages turned men away from God, but he won his great triumph in perverting the faith of Israel. Notice, where was it where Satan developed the greatest stronghold of transgression and iniquity. It wasn't in the lives of the heathen who were in rebellion against God. It was in God's chosen nation. That's where the refinement of Satan's demonstration of his character reached its height. And this is a very important point for us to notice because it was in Israel that God had prophesied that he would demonstrate what was the prophecy there in Daniel 9? You remember what was to come forth in Israel? Yes, everlasting righteousness. God was going to demonstrate his character in Israel. Satan was determined to demonstrate his character in Israel and to preclude any possibility of God demonstrating his character in Israel. This constituted part of the characteristics of the fullness of time and the chosen people. 
The principle that man can save himself by his own works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. It had now become the principle of the Jewish religion. Satan had implanted this principle. Wherever it is held, men have no barrier against sin. Now one of the things that I think we can see from these passages as we have been looking at them is that there is a very close parallel between the concept that God is all justice and the concept that we must earn merit with God by our works. There's a close connection between those two. If we perceive that God is a God of all justice and there's no mercy or forgiveness, then our only hope is to meet the claim of justice. And of course, we can't fully comprehend what that is. But as was demonstrated in the Jewish nation, they tried to do that by making all the minute exactions and burdensome requirements to make sure they would meet the requirement of justice and then God owed it to them to save them. And that's why it says here the principle that man can save himself by his own works became the basic principle of the Jewish religion. They were operating under that error that God was a tyrant. He's all justice. There is no mercy, no forgiveness. There is nothing but justice with God. They came to reflect the attributes and character of Satan in his accusations against God. The people whom God had called to be the pillar and ground of the truth had become representatives of Satan. Now keep in mind, this is talking about the condition of Israel at the time when Christ's birth took place. This is not talking about 33 years later, although the same thing was true to a greater extent then. But this is at the time his birth takes place. Has God disowned Israel? Has God totally rejected Israel? Has God said there's no hope for Israel? I'm going to work somewhere else? Yes or no? No. But that's what Satan was saying. That's what Satan was saying. In fact, it looked so true. There are statements in the Spirit of Prophecy that tell us that the angels saw no room for hope. Not only with Israel, but for the whole human race. The angels could see no room for hope. It says, speaking of the people whom God had called to be the pillar and ground of the truth, they were doing the work that he desired them to do, taking a course to misrepresent the character of God and cause the world to look upon him as a tyrant. The very priests who ministered in the temple had lost sight of the significance of the service they performed. They had ceased to look beyond the symbol to the thing signified. In presenting the sacrificial offerings, they were as actors in a play. The ordinances which God himself had appointed were made the means of blinding the mind. Notice, the very things God had given to point the people to him actually now became the means of blinding the mind to what God was trying to teach. They became the means of blinding the mind and hardening the heart. Put yourself in God's place. What 
recourse do you have when this is taking place? When the very things that you have given to reveal yourself to people are actually now being used to totally obscure your character and what you desire to reveal. What recourse is available? Is it now hopeless? The next sentence says, God could do no more for man through these channels. Now keep in mind again, this is talking about at the time of his first advent. The whole system must be swept away. The deception of sin had reached its height. Where did the deception of sin reach its height? Out in the heathen nations? No, in the midst of Israel. In the temple services with the priests and the rabbis. In all the world, that's where the deception of sin reached its height. All the agencies for depraving the souls of men had been put in operation. The bodies of human beings made for the dwelling place of God had become the habitation of demons. The senses, the nerves, the passions, the organs of men were worked by supernatural agencies in the indulgence of the vilest lust. Now notice on the next page, page 37, what it says. Sin had become a science and vice was consecrated as a part of of religion. Rebellion had struck its roots deep into the heart, and the hostility of man was most violent against heaven. It was demonstrated before the universe that, apart from God, humanity could not be uplifted. A new element of life and power must be imparted by him who made the world. With intense interest, the unfallen worlds had watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. They had watched with what? Intense interest. Now the angels and the inhabitants of unfallen worlds have seen many things. They know many things. What kind of things catch their interest? What kind of things do they watch with intense interest? Here it says they were watching what was taking place on this earth with intense interest. And what were they expecting to see? They were expecting to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. Why do you think they were expecting that? Didn't they expect him to show mercy? They had not seen a complete demonstration of mercy. They did not conceive fully of what mercy was. Remember, Satan had raised the claim there's no self-denial with God. Where had there been any conclusive demonstration to show that there was? Suppose God, at the beginning of the controversy, when Satan had raised some of these claims, God had gathered all the angels together and had a big meeting, and he said, Satan, had, or Lucifer at that time, has, has raised these issues, and I want to settle these issues for once and for all. Imagine God making that kind of a statement to the angels. And he says, I'm going to give Lucifer an opportunity to explain all of his accusations, and then I'm going to answer them. So Lucifer goes through, well, you require obedience from all your subjects, and you want to be all up on the top, and you, have, you don't 
exercise any self-denial yourself. You want all the praise and glory. Why don't you share a little of it with us? Let me sit on the throne. And so God says, all right, now I'm going to answer those claims. I hereby declare in the hearing of all of the beings that I have created that I do have self-denial. That's it, period. Would they all be convinced now? Yes. A divine proclamation, brothers and sisters, was not sufficient to answer the charges. And that's one reason why Lucifer was allowed continued existence. God said, we will see. You will have an opportunity to demonstrate your character, government, and purposes, and I will demonstrate my character and government and purposes and every one of my created beings can make a decision based on what they see and decide whether your accusations are true or false and whether my claims are true or false. And so at this point, at, at the time of Christ's first advent, the angels had heard the accusations Satan had raised. What had they already seen previous to that when sin and rebellion and hostility against God had reached a point in the past where something had to be done what had they seen they had seen the flood they had seen God sweep away the inhabitants of the earth that very demonstration of God would very easily have appeared to substantiate Satan's claim that the only way God can deal with rebellion is to destroy them. So that's why it says, with intense interest, the unfallen worlds had watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. They didn't they had never seen any other way of dealing with it. And if God should do this, Satan was ready to carry out his plan for securing to himself the allegiance of heavenly beings. If God had done that, Satan would have said, See, I told you. It's just like it was before, and it'll always be that way. The only way God can deal with people that don't go along with his program is destroy them, shut them out, blot them out of existence. I've got a better plan. And the heavenly intelligences and the angels would have said, that looks like that's true. He had declared, that is Satan, that the principles of God's government make forgiveness impossible. Had the world been destroyed, he would have claimed that his accusations were proved true. But what happened? Instead of arising and sweeping away the inhabitants of the earth, what did God do? At the very crisis when Satan seemed about to triumph, the Son of God came with the embassage of divine grace. That, brothers and sisters, was the fullness of time. It was at that point when the demonstration now would answer questions that could be seen clearly for what they were and the answers would be seen clearly for what they were. God does not waste 
his demonstrations. He gives them at the time when they will have the most impact. And that's what he did. After 4,000 years of the development of sin, in the context of the chosen nation, in the context of sin reaching the height of its deception, then he sent his son as a demonstration of self-denial, of willingness to die and to do everything possible for these very people. That was the demonstration of God's character. So as we look at these, these issues and these characteristics in regard to the developments of the first 4,000 years, what kind of a parallel should we see in the developments with the final issues? What is the issue that Satan has raised now since the cross in relation to justice and mercy? Yes, that mercy excludes justice. Before, God was all justice. Now, God is all mercy. That's the claim. God will take everybody to heaven. That's all mercy. Just believe in God. He'll overlook your sins and everything will be all right. Those are all echoes of that claim. We even hear shades of those kind of things coming in among Seventh-day Adventists. Those are simply echoes of Satan's claim. Remember some of those characteristics in the chosen people. The deception of sin, the echoes of Satan's claim, reached their highest level of refinement in the chosen people. That was where the contest became the hottest between truth and error was in the chosen nation. And that is where the demonstration took place. That's where the demonstration had to take place because the demonstration to be most effective needs to be side by side by the demonstration of the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity and the mystery of godliness must appear side by side for the contrast to be seen the best. And the chosen people was the stage for that demonstration. So the issue now is, does mercy exclude or destroy or in any way diminish justice? It says here is where the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan will take place. I'd like to read a few more passages from Inspiration. From Volume 7 of the Testimonies, page 264, we read, God's love for the fallen race is a peculiar manifestation of love, a love born of mercy, For human beings are all undeserving. Mercy implies imperfection of the object toward which it is shown. It is because of sin that mercy was brought into active exercise. Now was there mercy in the heart of God previous to Lucifer's rebellion? Absolutely. Mercy is an eternal attribute of God's character. Had the angels seen any mercy? Before Lucifer's rebellion? No. 
It was a mystery of God's character that the angels did not see. Because mercy is, as it points out here, is brought into active exercise because of sin. Not until the development of sin did the angels see the exercise of mercy taking place. That is one reason why Satan could raise objections and arguments and the angels did not have a previous background of observation upon which to see the answers to those arguments. Testimonies to Ministers, page 519. God loves the sinless angels who do his service and are obedient to all his commands, but he does not give them grace. They have never needed it, for they have never sinned. Grace is an attribute shown to undeserving human beings. We did not seek for it. It was sent in search of us. God rejoices to bestow grace upon all who hunger and thirst for it, not because we are worthy, but because we are unworthy. Our need is the qualification which gives us the assurance that we shall receive the gift. I hope these kind of thoughts give us each encouragement. What is it that entitles us to come to God and ask for grace? Our need. We do not have to be ashamed to express our need as dramatically and vividly as we can sense it because it's our need that entitles us to come to God and ask for help. God's only too willing to give it. We can totally dispense with any thoughts about how good we are or what we've done that entitles us to God's favor because our need is the only thing that entitles us to anything simply because God has said, I want to give you what you need. Review and Herald, December 20, 1892. Grace is unmerited favor. The angels who know nothing of sin do not understand what it is to have grace exercised toward them. But our sinfulness calls for the exercise of grace from a merciful God. It was grace that sent us our Savior to seek us as wanderers and bring us back to his fold. The apparent disposition of mercy to extend pardon to an offending person and allow him to escape the full weight of justice would obviously give rise to the question of whether mercy doesn't in some degree lower justice. Can you see where there's a, a problem there, or where there's at least some level of, of obscurity or mystery that needs to be cleared up, that needs to be answered? Does mercy pacify justice? Does it set aside justice or, or minimize it or lessen it a little bit? If it appears to alter in the slightest degree the requirement of justice, then we have a problem. We have an opening where God's government can be called into question. Notice what it says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 522. Satan deceives many with a plausible theory that God's love for his people is so great that he will excuse sin in them. 
And we can read a passage like this, and I think we may not realize how easily we cherish those kind of thoughts. You know, just little things sometimes we think, well, this won't keep me out of heaven. Or God will overlook this. People in the Bible did things a lot worse than this. You know, we, we tend to sweep little things aside. And we're actually cherishing this very thought that God loved, God's love is so great that He'll overlook a little bit of, of sin and a little bit of defect, a few spots and wrinkles. He, that is Satan, represents that while the threatenings of God's word are to serve a certain purpose in his moral government, they are never to be literally fulfilled. But in all his dealings with his creatures, God has maintained the principles of righteousness by revealing sin in its true character, by demonstrating that its sure result is misery and death. The unconditional pardon of sin never has been and never will be. Now that's an astounding statement. The unconditional pardon of sin never has been and never will be. Well, how is it that we're alive now? How do we explain that? It says, Such pardon would show abandonment of the principles of righteousness which are the very foundation of the government of God. It would fill the unfallen universe with consternation. If there's anybody who somehow is able to get around the requirement and not meet the requirement of God's law, and God allows them to live for eternity, it says here that the whole universe will be thrown into consternation. No wonder, well, where does God apply justice and where does He not? When does He let people off the hook and when does He say you've got to meet all the requirements? God has faithfully pointed out the results of sin, and if these warnings were not true, how could we be sure that his promises would be fulfilled? That so-called benevolence which would set aside justice is not benevolence, but weakness. So our understanding of mercy needs to be directed in a way in which it does not modify, lower, diminish, or detract from justice one iota in the final analysis. And so far, I think that, that the majority of people's understanding has been that justice is altered by mercy. And thus, Satan continues to have a level of credibility for his accusations against God. How does God answer these accusations? There are many passages we could read discussing this uh, problem of the justice and mercy. But I would like to read one passage here that gives us a little clue to answering this question of how God is going to, to make a demonstration that will effectively answer this question. From the book Sons and Daughters of God, page 243, we read, Christ on the cross was the medium whereby mercy and truth met together and righteousness and peace kissed each other. 
Now that gives us a clue that the the experience of Christ on the cross is a demonstration of the meeting of justice and mercy. It's a demonstration of where they are combined together. Where there's 100% justice and there's 100% the effects of mercy. The cross of Christ gives us a picture of that meeting together. So far, in our experience, we have not experienced the complete meeting together of 100% justice and 100% mercy. We have been experiencing mostly mercy. Very little justice. Would you agree? Yes. Yes, we have. But somewhere... There must come a point in time when 100% justice and 100% mercy meet together in our experience. And until that point takes place, it cannot be proven that mercy does not lower justice. Let's pursue this just a little bit more. From Patriarchs and Prophets, I read a statement yesterday, and I want to emphasize some thoughts in this again. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 42 and 43. Even when he was cast out of heaven, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan. Since only the service of love can be acceptable to God, the allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. The inhabitants of heaven and of the worlds, being unprepared to comprehend the nature or consequences of sin, could not then have seen the justice of God in the destruction of Satan. Notice, this was at the original rebellion of Satan. The inhabitants of other worlds and the angels would not have been able to see that this was the consequences of sin. Had he been immediately blotted out of existence, some would have served God from fear rather than from love. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. So even if Satan had been cast out of heaven and destroyed, his influence would have continued on. In order for Satan to be effectively cast down in every respect, his influence And the influence of his arguments must be fully met. Now you remember in Philippians, it tells us that every knee will bow to Jesus. Every knee or every person, every being will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Do you think that will be because God is standing behind and he says, kneel down. Will Satan or the evil angels or the wicked people be kneeling and acknowledging that God is fair because God is there ready to beat them down into place? No. It's fully and totally of their own choice. They are acknowledging what they recognize to be true. Satan himself willingly acknowledges God is fair and just 
He has nothing more to say. What will bring it to that point? The only thing that will bring it to that point is when Satan has been so effectually cast down that there's no more credibility to any argument he can raise. Every argument that he can raise has been answered by a demonstration. There's not one more word he can raise in accusation of God that has not already been answered. So how is the accusation that now mercy excludes justice answered? Well, you remember how the accusation that there's no self-denial with God was answered. It was for God to come and show that there was self-denial with him. That demonstration could not take the, take place on the part of any created being. If any created being had come to show self-denial, it would have been supporting Satan's claim. But it's actually the opposite to answer the second accusation of Satan. How do we show that justice is not diminished by mercy? There's only one way that that can take place. It's to take those who have availed themselves of all that mercy and grace can do. Fallen sinners who have availed themselves of God's grace and mercy and to pass them through the fire of justice to bring them to accountability. And that's precisely what the judgment is. The judgment brings us to accountability. You remember what Jesus said? Every word. The works that we have done all will be brought into judgment. Solomon pointed that out. Let's go quickly to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Sounds a little bit like the first angel's message now. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring how much? Every work into judgment with every secret thing. Does that sound like justice? Absolutely. Nothing will be left uncovered. God will bring every work with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And then it will be demonstrated whether mercy and grace have prepared us for that experience. When we face justice when we face accountability for all that we have done, if we have not repented of our sins, if we have not experienced God's forgiving grace and overcome those sins, if we cannot meet the requirement of God's law and deal with that accountability, then the weight of justice will bear us down with hopelessness and despair and destroy us. I'd like to
encourage us to take God's Word, to study it carefully, to seek an understanding of the part we have in responding to the wooing of God's Spirit. If you study in the book Great Controversy, in the the closing chapters, particularly the chapter on the time of trouble, it describes how there in the final conflict on this earth that God's people are searching their hearts. It describes how they are surrounded by people bent upon their destruction. And it describes how that they are not afraid of torture or death. There's one thing that is uppermost in their minds, that if something should be found in them that dishonors God, that God's reputation is at stake. And their greatest desire is that they, in their lives, will be demonstrating the character of Christ and there would be nothing there that would dishonor him. And we need that kind of a desire in our hearts to be true to God no matter what the cost, to be able to be a part of that demonstration that will answer those accusations and those claims of Satan. The Lord is desiring to guide us in that experience day by day now. Let's, as we especially pray, I'd like to encourage each one of you personally in your own heart's thoughts to ask the Lord for understanding and for grace and for strength to be true to him, to be that kind of a demonstration. Let's bow and pray for that. Father in heaven, if we examine our hearts and look at our own lives, we can see little but that which has dishonored thee and come short of thy plan. But our hope is not in what our past has been. Our hope is in thee and what thy spirit can do in our lives. We are thankful for the evidences that we can see where Thou hast worked in our lives, and we are thankful that our great need entitles us to come to Thee and ask for the help that Thou art willing to give. We want to avail ourselves of all that Thy mercy and grace offers us now, for we know that there is coming a time when mercy no longer pleads for fallen human beings a time when mercy's door is closed and it is forever too late, a time when the execution of God's wrath takes place. And we desire to have a part in demonstrating before the universe that the claims of our Heavenly Father are true, that His government and his character and purposes are just and pure, and that mercy and justice are united together, not 
only in the life of Jesus, but in our lives. I pray for a clear understanding of these things that we have studied, these deep themes of thy word that require concentration and, and earnest digging. And I pray that we may have that understanding of thy character, government, and purposes, and act in accordance with that in a way that will fulfill thy plan. I pray for an understanding of Jesus as our high priest, our heavenly mediator, our elder brother who is at thy right hand. And I pray that we may work in harmony to prepare people to see thee face to face. I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here. And as these meetings draw to a close and as we go our ways, I pray that the blessings that we have gained, the inspiration that has been received in our hearts would not fade away or diminish, but would become stronger and that we will strengthen every noble impulse and every prompting of thy spirit by earnest study and prayer and by sharing with others and by earnest resistance of Satan and his wiles. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.